we want to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We want to pick up where we left off. This is a, a dark and ominous and somber book, a book that is unlike any other book in the Bible. And instead of like most of the books of the Bible that are a reflection of kind of a revelation of God speaking from eternity down beneath the sun to you and to me, Ecclesiastes is a reflection of, of someone who lived and walked with God and then at the end of his life, as he began to reflect on, him, on, the, on his own life and the pursuits that he had, he or someone else collected his wisdom together and wrote Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes means literally the preacher, right? The teacher or the gatherer, someone who gets a bunch of people together and speaks and preaches and teaches. That's, that's what this is. This is a teaching from someone who's reflecting on life under the sun, that phrase under the sun being synonymous with life apart from God. As if to say, if this is all there is, if life can only be summed up by, by your own five senses, this is where you are left. So I want to begin in verse 24 of chapter 2 and then begin there and read the entirety of chapter 3 and wrap up a section that has been fairly somber and ominous, and I, I, I'll be honest, but I'm, I'm going to invite you into the sorrow and despair of Ecclesiastes. I want to rob you of your temporal happiness to point you toward what I think is a greater joy. So, as I said a few weeks ago, are you, you, know, are you feeling good today? Let's fix that. Here we go. Verse 24, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from Him, who can eat? Or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases Him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner He has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. And this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and it's time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek, and a time to lose, a time to keep, and a time to cast away, a time to tear, and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them 
than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him? to see what will be after him. My hope is that our time in this book of the Bible is a time of encouragement. It is a time, even if it is a time of sorrow, uh, that it is a time of sorrow that is temporary. A kind of sorrow that even though it hurts for a little while, I believe, will uproot and undermine the false things that we presently invest our own hope and identity in and replaces them with something eternal, something lasting. As we saw, the theme of the entirety of the book of Ecclesiastes is this word vanity. And remember, the mathematical value, for those of you who get all nerded out on stuff like this we saw last week, the mathematical value of the consonants that spell the word hevel, translated vanity, or the wind, has, has a value of 37, which is a random number you would think. In fact, intentionally so, that you would think, what a meaningless number. But in fact, that word shows up 37 times in the entirety of the 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes. In fact, the 222 verses of Ecclesiastes, never do math out loud, remember, unless you already know what the answer is, the 222 verses that make up the 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes break apart into six equal sections of 37. And we find ourselves in this beautiful and amazing place here, chapter 3. It's the end of the first kind of subsection. Up to this point, the writer, the preacher, has been kind of showing us of what life with a faith in God looks like by systematically deconstructing, finding meaning and happiness and enjoyment apart from God. And every time he looks for enjoyment apart from God, he lands this, it's vanity, it's poof, an onomatopoeia, a word that, that sounds a lot like it means 
such that, again, I mean, this is the best I could come up with. Like I said, I got, I got a lot of degrees, and life under the sun is poof. That's the best I got for you. I've worked really hard on poof. That's all I got, right? So life under the sun is poof. It, it blows away like, like the breath that you can see so briefly in the winter of South Dakota. In a moment, you kind of begin to understand your breath, but in an instant, it's gone. And so finding joy on this side of the sun, apart from God, is like trying to collect the wind. It's chasing after the wind, striving after the wind, the last verse of chapter 2 says. A good way to kind of think of this idea of poof, I encourage you to see this illustration today. Because today, if you're like me, you will celebrate a beautiful and amazing thing. You know what it is, right? Not a football game. Chips. Bags and bags of chips. Amen, praise God. And you, and you will, in a moment, have a big and puffy and beautiful bag of chips today. I don't know what's in your favorite bag, but you will look at it and think, what a, what a glorious sight, all of this, all the chips inside this bag. And you know what happens, for those of you who love chips as much as I do, you know what happens. You open and what? There's nothing in there. This, it's this big and it's, it's this full. And your hopes were literally deflated. And what seemed like a great deal, all of a sudden you realize, oh, 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 wow, they didn't measure this in volume, they measured this in weight. And as today you begin to open bags of chips, I want you to think of the words of Solomon. It's poof. This is, this is what it's like. If you try to find meaning in life, it's like trying to find a lot of chips in a brand new bag. It, do, it doesn't, there's nothing there. It's deceiving. It's ominously deceptive. You open and come to find out the thing that you were looking for doesn't exist. That, I believe, is a powerful image of what the preacher wants to teach. You want to find joy. You want to find meaning. You want to find lasting and eternal satisfaction. You want to find a sense of identity that will last. You can't find it here. Apart from God, it's meaningless. And as the Bible unfolds for us, this picture that though we've come from God and we go to God, now we wrestle to find our meaning and our present existence in God. And if, in fact, we come from God and we go to God, then, in fact, there's only one way to find satisfaction that comes from God. And I think what you'll see here is these two different themes are packed together in the entirety of chapter 3. You'll see this, that we are called to take heart in the ultimate purpose, nearness, and even the timing of God. So maybe if you're in this room, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. I'm really glad you're here. I really am glad you're here because I, I want you to begin to kind of sit back and think about what it is that we really believe. Uh, what it is that people who call themselves Christians really and truly believe. We really and truly trust that our only hope is in Christ alone. And to even have faith in him is a gift. That faith in and of itself, it, we find that is actually the grace of God. And it's such a gift that no one can boast in it. And if anyone tries to boast of their own selves, if they boast even of their faith, they've missed the object, they've missed the point. That is that our hope ultimately can be found in the purpose, the nearness, and even the timing of God. We believe that God is actually sovereign over things. So two different things are kind of packed together. The first half of chapter 3, we find uh, an interesting thing, the, the mutability, that is the tendency toward the, the liability to even the likelihood of change in this life. 
It's the mutability. It's the, the absolutely unpredictable nature of life. The unpredictable nature of human affairs. It's packed in that first little bit. Do you see this? Things are fleeting. Things are changing. There's a season here. There's a season there. There's a time for this and a time for this. And it's always changing. There's, there's always apparently more than one thing that could be happening. And we get this picture, this, like, this mutability, this changeability, the ever-fluctuating nature of culture and human affairs. But right after that, you see it kind of radically turns and then, and then talks about the unchangeableness and even the unsearchableness, the mystery of the character of God. The mystery of His own divine decree, His divine plan. And they're right next to each other. Did you catch that? So that you would weigh them side by side. The, the changeability, the relative unpredictability of human affairs and what we would say is the trustworthy and unchangeable nature and character of God and the unthwartability of His purposes. He's unstoppable. You see Him packed in together. So let's just walk through that. We see this right at the very beginning. It says, for everything there is a season and a time for every, every single matter, apparently. And then there's that phrase again, under the sun, under heaven. So there is a season and there is a time for every matter under heaven. And we come to find out that it is in fact God who, who a few verses earlier is the source of enjoyment and He is the source of all things that happen. It seems that God has created these seasons and in fact, I don't know if you caught that, He actually, knowing from beginning and end, makes them beautiful in their proper time. God does this. So the first thing I want you invite, to invite you to consider is the possibility that God actually has power over these things. So let's kind of walk through that. The, the first maybe principle in this, this list of, of different things that happen often side by side, and we're confused by which is which, that the world never stops changing. It, it never stops. Culture is always in flux. There is a sense in which whatever is will not be soon. Right? And now everybody loves to brag. This is, a, this is like a, a regional thing. Everyone loves to brag about this uh, with respect to their own local weather. Have you ever heard this? Um, people are like, yeah, weather in South Dakota. If you don't like it, just wait five minutes and it'll change. Ever heard that, right? Something like that? Here's the funny thing. Uh, if you know anybody else from anywhere else in the U.S., they say the same thing, right? They're like, so, you know, right here in California, you don't like the weather. Wait five minutes, it'll change. Granted, they don't have anything to complain about. I mean, Hello, there's snow out. Anyway, never mind. So this is this kind of thing that we, we often agree upon, but, but often think only applies to us. But, but it is a truth, an axiom that things are always changing. Whatever was in style is not. And whatever is not in style is on its way back to being in style again. And there's an unpredictable, and I would argue even an arbitrary nature to human affairs and what is and is not valuable what comes in and out of importance, what is and is not significant. It's always changing. Always. Now this might be, as we see here for the, for the preacher, the, the Ecclesiastes, this person teaching a source of despair. But I would argue it's, it's meant to point toward something greater. In fact, they might be things that God has created so that you will recognize his character amidst the backdrop of its opposite. 
Because if, if the first thing is true, then we find here that the, the proposition being made here is that the world is always changing. But the second proposition that is almost right next to it is that every change is determined by the supreme power and sovereignty of God. Now this is difficult. This is hard to believe. It is easier to believe that the change that's happening, that the unpredictability of life is a reflection on the failure of God. God is out of control. That there is somehow like, and, and in fact, most of the arguments against the existence of God, I've made these myself. You, you, this, right? Well, if God is real, then why this? You heard that? Have you heard it come out of your own mouth? If God really is real, and if God is good, then how can there be this? And what we find here is a divine mystery. I want to invite you into considering that God is so good that even the worst attempts by human beings to destroy one another cannot thwart His good purposes for His people. And even to begin to consider the possibility that that's true, even just to begin to, to ask that question, is it, is it possible that God is doing something here? Is the beginning of faith. It's the beginning of trusting in something that will not fail you. Because if the world is always changing, and if, as the preacher proposes, that God is doing something, therefore we ought to accommodate ourselves to his purposes there in finding the pleasure of life. If the world is changing and God is not, then we should accommodate ourselves to the God who is in charge of the changing world. If the world is unpredictable, but God is powerfully and mercifully predictable, then we should accommodate ourselves, hedge our bets, put, go all in on the God who's in charge. Now, it may seem like God is not in charge. And in fact, the first half of this chapter is the preacher's reflection upon that, isn't it? Sometimes it's this, sometimes it's that. But it says, for every single thing, there is a season. Every single thing, there is a season. Now, it isn't meant to make us kind of discern with any sense of authority or, or dictate those seasons. But if we're really called to take heart in God's ultimate purpose, then we see the changing of seasons as evidence of and as a backdrop to the reason why we worship God. For His unchangeable character. The unpredictability of life is meant to serve as a backdrop in which God is glorified for being so dependable. That's what we see here. And if that's the case, then we ought to start living accordingly. And that's what I want to invite you into doing. The book of Ecclesiastes is a defense of the life of faith, but it is a defense of the life of faith by reflecting on all the ways in which you, you, you find alternatives to faith to be deeply unsatisfying. Something in the material world as it currently exists that, that seems to tease us. It seems to hang out a stick and a carrot that, that is appetizing for us, but deeply unsatisfying for us. We talked about this last week. Everything that you currently think is awesome is a prime candidate for a landfill a couple of hundred years from now. Everything that you currently are finding your identity in will disappear once you are six feet underground. 
Death is the ultimate equalizer. It levels the playing field such that he now reflects upon, and it will seem dark. It will seem ominous. It will seem to to lead you to despair. But to begin to think about the weight that death holds over us, again, is a backdrop to begin to consider who holds power over death. If death exerts an equalizing power over us, then it might be worth considering who holds power over death. And as we consider these things, the unpredictability of our own lives, this material world as it currently exists, then this is what you get. A life that is hopeless and meaningless. Have you ever been there? Have you ever felt like you've wasted your time on something? Have you ever felt like you've, you've invested heavily into a relationship only to find that it wasn't reciprocated? Have you ever loved someone that didn't love back? Have you ever invested in something that didn't pay off? You've been there? Because I would argue that depending on what you invested, depending how much of your own identity you put on the line for that thing, so also proportionally will you experience a great devastation when it fails. In fact, depression is the end result of trying to find your hope in anything other than the eternal gift of God's grace. That thing you're currently pursuing, depression will be the last stop before you consider that there's something greater. I love you enough to tell you that. I think that this is highly relevant because as I get to know each of you, this is just the case that, that seems to be like, you're all on the way somewhere else, aren't you? And I know a lot of you, you're pursuing something. You're all deeply investing in something that's just right over the rainbow. And what I want to encourage you with is from a man who had success across every single level, some of the most devastating things that happen aren't failure. They derive from success. You see, this finds us in the, in the a deep pocket of, of the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. That is Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs, okay? This deep wisdom literature. And, and Job is a reflection about how godly wisdom can be attained by watching the life of a man who lost everything. He lost everything. And in losing everything, trusted in God. But Ecclesiastes is a reflection upon the wisdom that's granted by looking at the life of a man who got everything he wanted. Everything he wanted. I told you this a few weeks ago. Like if, it's hard to, to have a, a correlation to a guy like Solomon, right? If, and so the best I've heard is different authors put this together. But like if, you know, if, if, you took, if you took Hugh Hefner, right, and you took like the richest man in the world, like Bill Gates, and he took like Stephen Hawking, the smartest man in the world, rolled them all together, and then made that person like pope, king, emperor, right? Now you have an idea of who Solomon is. Never failed in anything. Solomon's successful, wildly, like infinitely more successful than you will ever be. Whatever you think and you, you're currently pursuing to give you a sense of, uh, a sense of satisfaction, Solomon nailed it. Kind of like rubbing it in our faces for the first few chapters. Nana, nana, boo, boo, I'm better than you. Oh, and by the way, it didn't work, right? Oh, oh, that's cute. You play beer pong. Is that what you like? Oh yeah, I, I, I plant vineyards and I, and I grow years worth of stockpiles of alcohol for people. Oh, and guess what? You know what I found? You're hungover every time. 
Oh, that's, that's, you, 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 you put something on your Pinterest board. That's cute. Yeah, I built like national parks. And uh, oh, oh you, you saved up for a ring for your fiance. That's cute. I built palaces for my wives. Oh, oh, you're thinking about asking that girl on a date. Oh, yeah, that's cool. I had 700 wives and 300 mistresses. You, you get the idea? And every single time he's like, and it was, it was meaningless. It was meaningless. You think it will land you at joy, but it won't. I got it all and it didn't. And this reflection of meaninglessness is, is what we're left with. Such that now, when we consider the seasons as they change, we consider that there might be something greater. In fact, there might be a power that's sovereign over it. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up. Here's, here's what I'll encourage you to think on. When we begin to consider the possibility that God really is sovereign, then we open the door for real joy. We realize that the seasons we experience might actually be little ingredients in something greater that God is doing. In fact, a flawed view of God's sovereignty will cause us to spend our whole lives avoiding the season that God has prepared for us to experience. This is tough for us, uh, to really consider the appropriateness of of our own lives and the season in which we exist. This means that if, if God is doing something here that's greater, then our right responsibilities is to be considering what time is it? Where are we in history? What is going on? And then we respond accordingly. This is a big deal for us because I would argue our culture creates a good backdrop to consider these things because we're not real good at this. Uh, there's a few places I could pick at, but probably like the most important thing is when we, when we begin to mark the seasons, we have accurate and helpful rites of passage accurate and, and rightful identity markers. I'm not talking about cultural stereotypes that give us a false sense of hope. I'm talking about really knowing where God has you and then acting accordingly, trusting that he's put you there for a reason. Seasons are difficult to define for us. One of the most powerful ones that is difficult to define in our culture that I push on, especially with men, is adulthood. Adult, it, it is a magical creature. It is a unicorn at the moment. Because th there's something amazing that's happened. There's this period we would call adolescence, or even, like, I guess if we want to talk like physiologically, we would call that term, that, that period, puberty. Now, it's easy to measure when it begins. And this is scary. This is difficult. You can actually measure this, especially in girls, because the beginning of menstruation begins and marks the beginning of that period. That beginning of adulthood. It's starting. And you know what we're finding? It's happening earlier and earlier. And boys and girls, either because, for a lot of different theories, are starting adolescence earlier and earlier. I, I, I get it. I have two daughters. I know how terrifying what I am saying is. I, I hear it bouncing off the wall and hitting me. And I'm like, oh, I'm not ready for this. And in our culture, like this, this, this journey into adulthood, we are forcing children to experience earlier and earlier, exposing them to things that were, whoa, I, don't, I, I wasn't exposed to that until I was much later. Like I was much older. It was much later in life when I was exposed to that. And it's terrifying, isn't it? Here's the more terrifying thing. While adolescence seems to be starting earlier and earlier, it seems to be statistically verifiable that it is ending later and later. You don't believe me? You know the most, this, this is why I pick at men on this. You know the most popular 
stories, movies, narratives for men, grown men, they're all based on comic books. Do you know who they market video games to? Not kids anymore. They market them to adults. Right? What, what used to be, at, at least for our own, like, I'm, I'm right with you. I, I mean, I love, stick me in front of the screen with this, and I'm, uh, I pass out. <laughs> I just, I go zombie. Right? Like, I just turn my brain off. That used to be something, you know, acceptable and cute for a young boy, and now, when does it end? When, when, when are you not allowed to do that anymore? When are the stories that you believe and begin to tell all of a sudden more adult in nature and less childlike? And those rites of passage are so loosely defined that I would argue there's a bunch of, I'm going to, there's a bunch of boys who can shave running around in our culture calling themselves men. And I'm sorry, ladies, we are, we are failing in this. And it is a result of not recognizing that God creates seasons and purposes, and when you don't recognize them rightly, everyone suffers. Everyone suffers. This also can be seen in the ways in which we define the terms of seasons. Like what is, think about like we're currently in a season that I would argue needs to be understood by people who call themselves Christians. We're living like as guinea pigs in light of for the last several decades what is known as the sexual revolution, right? Now it's not new under the sun, right? Our culture has embraced it and been like, yeah, if you just, if you have unbridled sexuality, then joy will come. It doesn't, it destroys you. And you know who told you that? You know who told you this? The one who told you there was nothing new under the sun? The guy who tried this also, right? Like, I, I don't know. 700 wives, 300 mistresses. I, I don't know how arduous it is for you to plan a wedding, okay? Now plan 699 more. And then you get kind of, now you get what's going on here. This guy bought all into Disney, right? Like all my, all my, pres, all, all my happiness will come if I just find the right person. And he's like, and another one, and another one, and another one. And if there was anyone who could talk about the the joy and sorrow of unbridled sexuality, it would be this guy. And you know what he says every time? Didn't work. Didn't work. It was meaningless. It didn't satisfy me. So we currently live on, like, as guinea pigs in the cultural revolution called, the, like, the sexual revolution. This is where we live, right? And we're taught by this. So much, though, that we only define terms, again, you got to know your season so you know where to stand. If I, if I tell you this, like, if I say the word, well, that has adult content, how do we define that? The beginning of every TV show, it says adult language, adult content, adult situations, and how do we typically define that? Sexual terms. Adult bookstores. Oh, what you mean like how to like refinance my house mortgage? You mean like how to like, like save up and pay for a roof? Like adult things, things that grown-ups do? Adult bookstore? Oh, you mean, you mean like how to be a good husband? That's an adult thing. Oh, you mean like how to raise children and grandchildren? That's an adult thing. That should be at an adult bookstore. And what is sold at an adult bookstore? You get it? You get the season we're currently living in? And if we're not aware of the changing season and the unchangeableness of God, you're going to be in trouble. You're going to pay for it, and so will everyone else. 
And so we begin to think that the mutability of the human experience is something we should pay close attention to. And we should see the unchangeable nature of God and act accordingly. It means that we really consider the possibility that God is in charge and doing something, even, even if we don't like that, even if it hurts. Although these seasons that are listed here are often disquieting and some of them even delightful, failing to see at, that God is at work in them is a theological mistake and you will cause harm. Because when something bad happens to you, the first thing you'll think is, I'm the exception. God's out to punish me. Ever been there? And you'll think that instead of a season, it's not just a season you're going through that God has ordained for your good, you'll think God's actually out to destroy me. Or the other side of the room, right? Something good happens. And in that moment, you're like, I am special. God has gifted me. Look at how awesome I am because of how awesome things are. Been there? Neither of them last. It's a theological mistake. In fact, it will, it will destroy relationships. It becomes a relational mistake because we'll be tempted to think that if someone is in a more delightful occasion, we'll have envy or covetousness for them. We won't celebrate with them, but we'll be like, well, that's not fair. I want to be in that season. Or if someone's in a, in a season of suffering and sorrow, of weeping, did you catch that? Have you, like things that are broken down, falling apart, lost. Have you been there? And when you see someone in that season, you'll, you'll judgmentally say, well, they need to get their life together. That's a theological and relational mistake. In fact, our thoughts and actions reflect the character of an unchanging God. In the midst of all these inequalities and in these inconsistencies in the character of people, we actually believe that God is in control. Did you catch that word? It says that this is the person's lot. This is a, a human being's situation. The better way to say this maybe is that that is his occasion. This is the occasion of human beings. Think of it like the season we in which we currently live is the special occasion that God has placed you in for your good, your joy, and his glory. This is what God does. It's a predetermined time. Now stop. I know that freaks you out. I get that. Right? You and I have also been raised in a season uh, post-enlightenment to think that you have a free will that you can do whatever you want and no one can stop you. In fact, the heroes of our day are the people that impose their will on the people who oppress them. Right? Caught this? If you don't believe me, again, we always talk about this. Watch the, the, the children's movie. You want to understand the culture, watch what they teach the children. Uh, watch the children's movie, Babe, okay? It's about a pig who thinks he's a, a sheepdog, and he spends his whole life imposing his will on others, and the hero of the story is a pig who's not a pig. He's a pig, but apparently at the end of the story, everyone treats him like not a pig. Get it? I mean, like, just trust me. A lot of things going on in our culture will all of a sudden make sense. When you watch the children's material, okay, just, you'll be like, oh, I get, oh, that makes sense. Explain Teletubbies, right? This, what's happening? <laughs> yeah, you wondered what's wrong with you. There you go, I had it. Sorry, didn't mean to. Back to this. So, so we live in a narrative in which like, you impose your will onto something, and yet we're invited to consider a narrative by the preacher here that like, there is some other will that God is doing. He is sovereign over it. And I know that's, that's, that's terrifying, but, but I want to say there's two reasons why that's worth considering. Okay? And the first one has to do 
with the healthy sense of humility that happens. Um, have you ever wondered why the things that you try to do sometimes fail? It's because you're not God. And in, as shocking as it may be in that moment when that thing falls apart, it's actually a healthy and helpful dose of humility to consider that there is maybe someone other than you, I know it's going to hurt, that's God. And maybe there is a God and you're not it. That's the first place to start and it's the first gift that happens. It, it, it begins to instill a sense of humility. You, you begin to understand why you're not in control. It begins to make sense why things fail. Oh, the market fluctuated. Why? Because you're not God. It does its own thing. There are seasons that come and go, and you don't have control over them. In fact, trying to impose your will to change those seasons can be dangerous. But the second thing that happens is this, and this is a helpful thing. So maybe if you're considering the life of faith on its merits, I want to say this, like, to consider that God could be sovereign even in the midst of things that look like chaos is, is the root of worship. Every week we get together and we sing a bunch of songs about how good God is. I'll be the first one to tell you, if God's not really in control, he doesn't deserve your silly songs. If God's really not having power and sovereignty over us, I'll be the first one to tell you, you better get something better to do on a Sunday morning, right? Go buy a boat or a snowmobile, right? Like, get a better hobby. Because you will find more joy in one of those fleeting little hobbies than you will ever find in trying to impose your will all the while these other people believe that God exists, but he's really impotent and he can't do anything. But what I think you'll find is that to begin to consider that God is in charge of things is the beginning of joyful worship and gratitude. It really is. It's the beginnings of worship. So if you ever find, this is a big deal for us. We are a worshiping church. We do that. And if you come in and hang out with us on a Sunday morning and the songs we sing loudly together, I know it's weird. It's not a soccer game, which is the only other place you would sing, but it's weird. I get it. It's countercultural. We're okay with that and we do it anyway, right? But if you're in that moment, like we're doing this and, and it feels uncomfortable, can I, can I just ask you to consider something? It probably feels weird because you don't really believe that God is in control of anything. And deep down, you think you deserve worship more than he does. And I want to encourage you. This God who is sovereign over the seasons, this God who is unchangeable, even though we are fleeting and mutable, is worthy of praise. You can sing songs to this God. That might sound crazy, I know. You can sing songs to this God because this is the God who deserves it. This is the God who actually deserves it because he can take all things and work them together for good. For them that love him and are called according to our purposes, no, set aside for his good purposes. All things work together for good for us? No, not really, but they work together for thus, us according to his purposes. This, this is what we begin to consider. And when we do, this is crazy, we start to worship. We start to really realize that what God has done for us is something we do not deserve, and we respond in gratitude. So the first half of this chapter, we see the seasons being laid side by side. Seasons that I think are encouraging to us. It, was there one that stood out to you, maybe? I'll give you a couple that stood out to me. There's a time to weep and a time to laugh. I bet, I don't know all of you that well, but I bet you probably have a predisposition towards one or the other. You do. 
And there's good news for those of you who think that laughing is silly and the worst thing of all. In a life this side of the sun, sometimes there's a t- there's a t- sometimes you got to laugh. Take your purpose seriously, but don't take yourself too seriously. And those are the people who have joy and are laughing, it, it's not because you're better than them and they're silly. It's because they've seen the occasion and they've taken it. Be softened by that. But here for the other rest of us, this is helpful, um, there's a time to weep. I think of it this way. I, I experienced this this last week. When you begin to cry, what makes you stop? And if you're like me, you stop crying because you're supposed to. And the minute you start, you apologize. And you're like, oh, i got to quit that. I'm weeping. Stop. And here's good news. There's a, there's a time for this. There's a time for this. There's a time to weep, to really have sorrow. And we don't look down on either people. And this is helpful for me, right? God has sanctified me, and, and I'm not there yet. Even now, like I, 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 there's times I feel the need to weep, and I just kind of push it down. I was like, stop, don't do that. You can't do that. But there are other times where God's really set me free. I've shared this with you. Um, I, my daughters have been the greatest act of sanctification for me uh, because they, they'll just, for, for better or worse, have changed me in this particular regard and have softened me incredibly. And now I, I cry at the end of Cinderella every single time. Every single time. Every time. And I used to be ashamed of it. I used to be ashamed until I, until I realized that what I was teaching my daughters was wrong. Sometimes, you watch it, okay? You, you see it. You, you, watch, you watch a dog die in a movie. They die in every movie they're in. And see what it causes you to do. And there's a time to weigh something, measure it, and weep. Because it hurts. It says there's a time for embracing and a time to refrain from embracing. All right, touchy-feely people, give some people some space sometimes. But okay, all you other OCD people that have bubbles, let people in. You get it? There's a time for this. And if you are more loyal to the thing than the appropriateness of that thing in its season, you'll miss out on the joy that God has allotted for you. And there is nothing better, he summarizes, than to begin to enjoy something in its season. There's nothing better. There's nothing more amazing than to begin to realize that God might have given us a small little gift of grace to point to his better timing. That he actually is control and that he's doing something. I mean, this is an appropriate, this is the strange how some of this works. We were going through the book of Acts and when we got to the story about how Timothy was let go by his mother and grandmother to go be a missionary even though he might die, um, we, we talked about missional motherhood and we just happened to be preaching on Timothy the day of Mother's Day because I, I don't, plan that out very well. Well, if you want to think about seasons, and if you don't think we're desperate to understand the seasons, did anyone notice what happened this last Thursday? Some people, a celebration that's been going on for over a hundred years, pulled out a groundhog and asked him what time it was. I, I can't make this up, man. I can, I'm just not. Like, they pulled out a groundhog and asked the groundhog, what season is it? That's a real thing. Oh, they didn't really mean it. Well, I mean, maybe, but why? Wouldn't they have given it up on year three, year four, year five? You get it? How silly are we that we're so hungry to know what time it really is that we'll look anywhere to get it? Look for answers in places that can't satisfy. But I want to show you that God actually does this thing. In fact, 
marking out the seasons is actually his favorite thing to do. And it doesn't stop with the wisdom literature. Jesus picks up where Solomon leaves off. I just compiled a few here, and this, is, this, this list isn't complete, but I want to end on it. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 25, Jesus says to his disciples, See, I told you beforehand. In Mark chapter 13, 23, he says, I have told you all these things beforehand. John 14, 29, And now I have told you before it takes place. Why? So that when it takes place, you may believe. God is leading us through the failure of Solomon and allows us to see into the beginning of how he is ultimately healing Solomon from what Solomon spent the entirety of his life destroying. 28 times in these eight verses we see the word time. And that's interesting because time typically haunts us, doesn't it? Time typically gives us stress. It typically puts pressure on us. It reveals our shortcomings. And it either reveals our own misuse and laziness or even boredom. But what if time actually comforted us? What if we saw that God is over time and then we found comfort in it? According to Isaiah 49, it says this, Thus says the Lord, In a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land and apportion these desolate heritages. Galatians 4.4 4 says it this way, time has waited basically long enough, and now God sends forth his son. Matthew chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, Herod wants to know what time the star appeared, and then he starts killing infants as a result. Mark chapter 1, the time is now fulfilled, Jesus says, and he comes preaching the gospel of his new kingdom, a kingdom that's upside down. Luke chapter 4.13, Jesus spends 40 days, an allotment of time in the wilderness, an opportune time for the enemy to try to exploit him. Matthew 8, the demon Demons are trembling. This is one of my favorite stories. You remember this? He comes to cast out the demons, and the demons say, Jesus, have you come to, to torment us before the apportioned time? Remember this? It's like they knew a beating was coming. They just didn't think it was today, right? They were like, oh, shoot. It was, it's, it's, I thought it was later. It's today? We're going to get beat today? And, and they're afraid because they know a beating is coming from Jesus. They know the victory has been won by Jesus, and they're like, I just thought it was later. It gets better. John chapter 11, Lazarus faces death, and Jesus does what? He waits two days to go visit him. Why? Because he understands something we don't about time. John chapter 20, Mary weeps, and Jesus waits. Luke chapter 19, one of my favorites, verse 9. He's in the house of Zacchaeus, and he says, I love this, today, today, salvation has come into this house. Matthew chapter 12 just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of, me be three day, be, the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. God's timing is perfect. John chapter 7, they want to arrest Jesus, but Jesus says the hour has not yet come. John chapter 7, the feast is waiting, and he says the hour is not yet come. Matthew 26, the Passover arrives, and then finally Jesus says, my time is at hand. It's now. This is the season that's appropriate for this. Mark chapter 14, Jesus is betrayed, and even in his betrayal, do you know what he says about Judas? He says, the hour has come. As if to say, even, even Judas' betrayal couldn't derail what Jesus was already doing. Mark chapter 15, they crucify him, and the text tells us that at the third hour exactly, he spills his blood. Mark chapter, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 27, the afternoon quits, and for three hours it goes dark. Mark chapter 15, the ninth hour comes, and the Father forsakes him for our sake. John chapter 19, he says, it is finished. 
Hosea chapter 6 tells us this, that after two days, he will revive us, and on the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. And Luke 24 tells it this way, that the first day of the week, at early at dawn, there's some women, and they went to the tomb and taking spices that they had prepared. It says that at, they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground when they saw these angels. And he says, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you? Remember how he told you what was going to happen? He's the one who told you that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and then on the third day at the right time, raise again. John 20 says that Thomas is doubting and Jesus sits around waiting eight days. Acts chapter 1, 3, there's 40 days while Jesus is preaching. Acts chapter 1, the day comes and Jesus ascends. John chapter 5, the hour comes, death waits, and it says that the voice of the Son of God will rise. Mark chapter 13, verse 33, the hour comes unannounced. Until finally, one of my favorite ones, I want to end on this. Encouraging the church about the seasons, Paul tells the people at Corinth, shares this good news, and he says, now working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain, for he says, and he quotes Isaiah here, in a favorable time I have listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Friend, it might be possible that God has allotted the seasons of your life, even though it seemed like they're out of control, so that you might, now when you consider this possibility, have wandered haphazardly into this room so that I could stand up here and tell you that behold, now is the favorable time. Now. I know there's a million messes that brought you here. I know you'd rather be anywhere else than having me shout this at you. I know you'd rather be doing anything else. And I know maybe you have a favorable life out there over the rainbow that you wish you were living, but you're stuck with the one you have now. And I want you to consider the possibility that in spite of all of those crazy seasons and the hurt that is a result of those things, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. You see, the season that we are currently in is a season that God is saving and redeeming his people. And it just might be the case that the weight and the haunting and the pressure of time has been overcome by the one who invented it. That the weight and the pressure of the seasons is nothing for the one who created them. So that today, in this moment, you would be sitting right here and hear that God is actually doing something to draw you to himself. And this season, I know it seems upside down at times, actually is a season to bring you right where God wants you to hear that there is good news those seasons don't define you they're just the backdrop to display how much God loves you let's pray God we thank you for your goodness um, God we tackle mysterious things here uh, we have addressed things that are beyond understanding. And I, I, I sense even in my own, I sense just my own inability to make those things clear. Uh, but would you work a miracle? Would you begin to allow us to consider that you might have brought us into this season and the appropriate response is to see you as Lord over all? 
God, I feel the weight of seasons on my own life. I feel the weight of the seasons as they've kind of worn on many of us. Uh, God, we've, we've been through some seasons that are so very difficult. There are those of us in this room that we've traveled through some days and, and times that, that have left scars, and they filled us with doubt, they filled us with skepticism, they filled us with regret. Would you begin in all of our broken seasons, and all of our failed pursuits, would you begin to open our eyes like Solomon's to see that you alone can offer enjoyment, and you are in fact sovereign over the times such that even in the midst of the devastation, we would look and see that God has actually created these things in their own time to be beautiful. Would you do something beautiful in this room? Would you, if there's someone in this room, maybe, maybe today is the day they need to confess you as Lord. They need to turn from all the things that are unsatisfying and they may look to you and thereby be a part of something that even though it looks messy, would be beautiful. We'd celebrate it and we'd sing about it. Maybe for the rest of us, we just know that we've, we've used time for our own advantage and failed to see you as sovereign over it. Would you begin to open our eyes to see there is no time that is beyond your understanding and knowledge. And everything that has happened may very well have led us to this point where we would confess that you are Lord, that you are good, you are merciful. And as you draw us near to you, we can respond and come humbly. We can be open and transparent and admit the times that we have failed to see the season rightly and we've rebelled against you. Would you now receive us gladly and graciously, not as one who receives condemningly or judgingly, but as one who receives graciously. We thank you for this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.